0: Hey, y'all, and welcome back to another episode of the Crude Audacity podcast, the podcast that talks shop, shit, and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. As always, I'm your host, Catherine Mills. I'm a reservoir engineer with a focus on advanced characterization. So today, y'all, we will be discussing the value of hard work and a good mentor. It's really no secret to anyone out there that there are distinct generational gaps and educational gaps in our industry. And in truth, if you think about it, it's sort of scary that the five-year mark has now become a signature of seniority in our industry. But with our gurus retiring, what choice do we have? Everyone is in such a rush to earn a manager title that we tend to lose the technical skill sets and training opportunities that we otherwise would have. Our influencer today has learned from the greats and is still paying it forward. Known for his work, research and implementation in chemical tracers, he is pioneering the way for technical advancements in, ma- in matrix environments for conventionals and even enhanced recovery. Please help me welcome Mr. Single Well Chemical Tracer himself, Mr. Charlie Carlisle. Welcome to the Crude Audacity. Thank you. So you have heard the phrase that standing on the shoulders of giants, basically the mentors that came before. And I know you've benefited from it, but you've also taken great leaps and bounds to not only excel past it, but to bring so many along with you. So today, let's talk about your history with your company, Chemical Tracers. And I know that you were from Louisiana, but how did a Cajun find his way into Laramie, Wyoming?
1: Well, that's a, that's a, a little bit of a long story, but the uh, one, my uh, Big mentors for the uh, uh, most of my career is Harry Dean's. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harry is a professor of chemical engineering at uh, Rice University. He uh, he left Rice to join Exxon for a couple of years in the early eighties, uh, and went on uh, to join the University of Houston in about eighty two. Then decided to go to the Wyoming and to join University of Wyoming <laughs> um, right around uh, nineteen ninety. Okay, and I literally followed him. Uh, to Wyoming.
0: So how did y'all meet?
1: Uh, We met at Exxon Production Research. Okay. uh, Where I did uh, training uh, for single-well chemical tracer test. I worked for a small company called uh, Geochem Research. Exxon uh, approached us uh, to go to the field and start implementing single-well chemical tracer testing technology that Exxon had taken to a point that they felt like service companies could uh, handle it from there. They had They had done or participated in uh, around 50 tests, uh, had had, uh, more or less perfected the approach as to how to measure oil saturation uh, from a single well using uh, partitioning tracers. Uh, And so I met Harry because Harry was the inventor. Hmm. Uh, He invented uh, single-well chemical tracer testing in 1968.
0: That's impressive. He
1: was working summers uh, for Exxon Production Research because uh, he worked at Rice full-time. and He had summers off, and to make a few more dollars to support his family, he worked summers at Exxon. Cool. What we, it was called uh, SO Production Research then. But he uh, his first summer there working under the mentor he was under, which is Bob Blackwell, uh, who asked him uh, to look at Claude Cook's patent, uh, which is uh, working through two perforations uh, with a packer between, inject a set of tracers down the annulus. The tracers will go out in the reservoir above the packer, go below the packer out in the reservoir and be produced back up the tubing. You would get a chromatographic separation and you could measure wall saturation using that approach. That's Ooh. the Claude, Claude Cook patent. Claude's still with us. The um, Harry uh, disappeared for a little while, came back and said, uh, let's use a reacting tracer like ethyl acetate, inject it into a set of perforations, push it out there. It'll react with the water. Shut the well in for a day or two. Mm-hmm. It'll make ethyl alcohol, which is not a partitioning tracer. Recover them. You get the same chromatographic separation. You can measure oil saturation in situ. That's and, uh, neat. Exxon patented. Uh, the first patent was 1971, I think. And uh, they, I uh, went to uh, Exxon uh, Research in '79. Uh, spent a couple of years with Harry. Uh, Lori Schallenberger, uh, several uh, other uh, fantastic gentlemen worked uh, with them. Uh, We wound up uh, doing a lot of tests for Exxon research and Exxon fields. uh, Like, um, oh, there's many of them. But we wound (laughs) up in uh, uh, odd places like Saudi Arabia and and all over the place. And Harry and I across the next 35 years, uh, I'm not sure how many times we circled the globe. but
0: That's amazing.
1: There were a lot of trips. We got a lot of stamps in our passport because during that uh, course, uh, when I started working with Harry, there had been around 50 tests done. Now, uh, there's been uh, something over 600. And uh, just by uh, living long enough, I suppose, and uh, having the right mentors, I was involved in... Uh, uh, Most of those 600 tests, uh, I'd say 95% or more. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, uh, that was my start to get from uh, uh, Louisiana to Houston. I was in Houston for about uh, 17 years. And then uh, Wyoming, and I'm still in Wyoming. Yeah. uh, Even though we snowbird back to Texas. uh, He is leaving
0: on Monday morning to snowbird back to Texas. So. yes. (laughs) yes. But... Okay, so y'all came up here and you started Chemical Tracers, but that continued to take you all around the world. I know you've done some stuff in uh, the 48. So can you kind of take us through some of those projects and how you really got going and really how you took it from just research to a global entity?
1: That's a tall order. Oh, the, sorry. <laughs> well, the, uh, the the Chemical Tracers as a company started in 1987, Okay. Uh, In Houston, uh, we were working in, uh, we had projects in Canada and uh, Middle East, uh, all over Texas, Oklahoma, California. We were working uh, quite, quite a lot just to measure residual oil saturation. That's the amount of oil that we're leaving in the ground after water flood is completely mature, which is in very rough numbers about a third of the oil. Okay. We produce about a third. We leave two thirds in the ground. A third is residual, which water flood will not get, and the other third is bypassed oil. Uh, And uh, Randy Seawright, another mentor, New Mexico Tech, uh, taught me that one, uh, so I want to credit him with that. But uh, the 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 problem uh, that uh, I ran into immediately as I started working with Harry at Exxon doing uh, tests is we had to analyze these tracers, and it's very salty water, um, almost saturated. Sometimes was saturated, and we had to measure low concentrations of alcohols and esters, uh, being uh, using uh, gas chromatography. Um, working uh, with my mentor in graduate school, uh, Earl mm-hmm. Baker, uh, he taught me a lot about uh, gas chromatography. Uh, okay. Is also my first employer, which is Geochem Research or Geochem Laboratories. Geochem Research, Jeff Bayless uh, worked with me, taught me a lot about uh, gas chromatography. But I was in Houston, Texas. Um, so uh, Jerry Christensen who who designed the uh, chromatograph that went to the moon and to Mars uh, to analyze taught me my trade mm-hmm. so I was able in 78 uh, going into the tracer business uh, even though I was working with a very uh, high-powered research company Exxon uh, their chromatography wasn't so good uh, but using uh, uh, some of the skills that I had learned from mentors and and uh, Stan Stearns at Valco, who invented and builds the valves that are used today, uh, I just happened to show Harry how to do a better job with the analytical. He was he was stunned uh, <laughs> that a, a kid out of school could do this. And
0: uh, that's so cool because you had the opportunity not only to learn from him, but you you were starting to add to it as well. And that's yes. one of the things I love so much about good mentors is they. They give you the foundation, but they also give you the ability to spring forward. And you got to do that with him. That's amazing.
1: So uh, I became uh, the the analytical uh, side, and he would depend on me to get good um, field analytical results. In other words, uh, gas chromatographic uh, uh, analysis of a whole series of samples during a test. Um, and make sure that it was uh, quantitatively correct because that's, we were depending on that to know how these tracers were separating in the reservoir, mm-hmm. which would reflect the ratio of oil-to-water in the pore space. Yeah. Now, the, um, uh, and we got along uh, so well. Uh, he was the theoretical man. Uh, and what we would do uh, about the first uncountable number of tests, 20, 30, 40 uh, we had a numerical simulation model, a finite difference model, uh, that we worked from. That was uh, uh, born at Exxon, and Harry uh, would uh, change the model for every test because we would run into a different effect, a different mm-hmm. different uh, 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 way the tracers came back. They didn't they didn't look like the last one, so he would he would come up with a theory and change the te- the the simulator in the field of, while we were producing the test back. I mean, he was, uh, he was very confident in my ability to analyze the tracers, uh, in all kinds of environments and keep the, the chromatograph running in all kinds of crazy conditions in the field, which <laughs> is, uh, I could tell you some tales on that, but
0: we might get into that then <laughs> we, we,
1: we made a good team. Uh, but he was determined that, uh, I had to, uh, become the whole package, mm-hmm. uh, knowing the, the theory, Knowing the, the, how to interpret these results, how to uh, design the, the, the test, uh, how much we should inject and, and that for all kinds of uh, uh, plastics and carbonates uh, all over the world. Um, and uh, how to uh, go to the field. That was more like Laurie Schallenberger taught me uh, when we went to the field, you have to make friends with the field supervisor the yeah. first day or you're going nowhere. Exactly. Uh, and that was, that was his skill. and and he taught me that so to this day uh, the first thing we do when we go to the field is we make friends (laughs) with the people that are running the field we don't just show up and say uh, we are here Uh, uh, please uh, bow down we're technical uh, gurus and we're going to make some measurements please get out of our way that's the opposite of what we do We do. And uh, we we come and we take off our hats and say, can we please sit down and visit for a while? We're going to explain what we're here for.
0: Absolutely. And
1: we include uh, the field people in our uh, strategy and planning and ask them if it makes sense to them and should we change anything. And and they come into the circle um, and support us. And uh, then magically, when things go very wrong in the field, I pick up the phone and there they are because Mm -hmm. they're a part of our team. Exactly. And that's a a secret that I learned uh, very early on. And it's been a big part of uh, our success at Chemical Tracers.
0: Well, it sounds like your mentors not only taught you how to open the conversation, but how to really find your team and work forward with your team. So on that note, for someone like me who is learning the enhanced recovery side of the business the tracers that i am used to we use to monitor the size of big fracks and i know that these are partitioning tracers that we use to look at residual saturations mm-hmm. so can you give us a fundamental lesson on the difference of tracers in the market what exactly is a chemical tracer and um, its application for us just you know high level it, this is what you need to know
1: yes uh, i would be glad to thank you the um, in the early days, in my early days, were in the 70s um, and the 80s, and we used uh, radioactive tracers, uh, common, uh, treated water, just another day. Um, the uh, uh, radioactive tracers uh, uh, became uh, uh, less and less popular as we went through the 80s. People were very concerned about the health um, uh, problems associated with that. Um, and so we, we stopped using uh, the, uh, the radioactive tracers and went to the chemical tracers. Uh, okay. And matter of fact, we chose uh, chemicals that you would find in your bathroom cupboard a lot of times isopropyl alcohol, methyl alcohol, and uh, the airplane glue that you stuck together the little uh, plastic plane with is uh, ethyl acetate, is the solvent. So we picked a set of tracers that I could go to uh, companies. And say uh, these are benign tracers and so we named our company chemical tracers mm-hmm. so that uh, uh, it would be differentiated or separated from uh, radioactive tracers
0: so some like strategic yeah. direct marketing changes. yes
1: yes and so it was really a, uh, a a way of identifying that we're not playing with these nasty old uh, radioactive nuclear tracers these are uh, simple uh, household uh, chemicals now when uh, um, an oil reservoir is uh, born, it's, um, it's either sand or carbonate uh, deposits that has a pore space. Those pores are filled with water. Uh, the, the source rocks uh, deeper in the basin or adjacent will generate hydrocarbons, which are trying to leak to the surface. Mm-hmm. 95% of them do. Um, <laughs> and about 5% are accumulated in what we call an oil reservoir. Uh, it starts as the oil, the oil percolates in. It pushes the water basically down, um, but it can't push all the water out because of capillary pressure. Yes, and you wind up with a, a fairly high uh, fraction of the porosity filled with oil. Let's say eighty percent, just for an example. But twenty percent will still be wet with water. So the the, the, the uh, the ratio of oil to water might be 80-20 in a, a brand new field that you just discovered. Now, that, that will range a little bit, uh, but that's a good sp- starting spot. As we drill into the field, uh, discover this 80% uh, oil uh, sharing 20% of the uh, pore space with uh, water, the, we get uh, straight oil. The, uh, and uh, as we produce the, uh, the well or wells and they exploit the field, that oil leaves, but water comes in and replaces the void. Sometimes we have to inject that water because it's a it may be a closed system, and what we call water flood. But the, as the as the water replaces the oil, we get a reverse effect in that uh, the oil will go to a certain uh, saturation or a certain fraction shared, mm-hmm. and then stop flowing. It's what we call residual oil. We call right. it the end point of the relative permeability curve to get to get into a little deeper water. Now, that's what we are in the business of measuring. When the oil will no longer move, it can still occupy from 10 to up to 45% of the pore space, which gets back to what I said earlier, where about a third of the oil is still going to be in the ground left behind by water flood and all of our efforts um, in the form of what we call residual oil. It's not a residue, uh, but it is sitting still. And uh, what Harry uh, saw back in 1968 was that when you have uh, an, an oily material uh, sitting still and you have water flowing by it in a, in a system of pores, you have a perfect system for liquid chromatography. Sure. When you pass, the, and you, when you add to that water that's flowing, uh, say an alcohol, like ethyl alcohol, grain alcohol, um, just a few ppm. It will just travel with the water and ignore the oil. However, uh, a partition it's a non-partitioning tracer, a partitioning tracer like ethyl acetate will spend time in the oil and the water simultaneously. We call it a distribution. Uh, Since the oil is sitting still and the ethyl acetate, uh, which is moving in the water, it's very soluble in water, um, it's moving through the pore space. But since it's spending time in the stationary oil, and the moving water, there's a separation that occurs between the alcohol, non-partitioning tracer, and the ethyl acetate, partitioning tracer, and you get a separation we call chromatography between these two chemicals. They're injected in little small slugs, not continuously, so there's little slugs that will separate as they make a trip uh, through the reservoir. Now, the, the way we stage this trip is we go to a single well Mm -hmm. We inject uh, a volume of water, let's say 500 barrels, um, and the first 20% of that fluid will have the ethyl acetate. Then we'll push that ethyl acetate uh, out away from the well, about 15 radial feet. It'll look like a donut, the height of the (laughs) perforated zone, and we just shut the well in. That's about a one-day operation. Okay. Shut the well in for a few days, depending on reservoir temperature, and ethyl acetate likes to react with water. And it forms ethyl alcohol. We don't inject the ethyl alcohol, just the ethyl acetate. Okay. We let the reaction go of two or three, four days uh, to get enough of this ethyl alcohol where we can detect it on our analytical gear, which is a gas chromatograph. On the surface, small lab. When we bring the well, when we produce these tracers back from the same well that we injected uh, the tracer into, uh, eighty to ninety percent of the ethyl acetate is still there, but 10 to 20% has converted to ethyl alcohol, the non-partitioning tracer. They're superimposed on this donut. As the water flows back to the well, we're producing the well, it makes 100% water because it is at residual oil saturation. Okay. And we start looking for these tracers, catching samples every 10, 15 minutes and analyzing them right at the well site. And the, the ethyl alcohol will arrive first because it just traveled with the water, ignoring the oil. However, the ethyl acetate had to spend up to four times as much time in the stationary oil as it did in the moving water. And it will separate and arrive after the ethyl alcohol. The separation is the ratio of oil to water in the pore space. Okay. Now, if there's no oil, let's say it's just 100% water in yeah. the sand then there's no separation that occurs between the ester, the partitioning tracer, and the alcohol, the non-partitioning tracer.
0: That's a good way to test when you're doing exploratory stuff. Yes,
1: and we've done that many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, we've, uh, we've tested to make sure that it will read zero,
0: <laughs> and we've
1: tested to make sure it will repeat yeah. uh, many times over in the same, uh, same well, do the same test over and over. Will it give you the same answer? And it does. That's the, awesome. Very, very robust test, uh, very simple test. It's just difficult to explain to your mother what you do for a living.
0: I know that feeling.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I hope my mom doesn't hear that. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, okay. So that's from the conventional side. Do you have any or foresee any unconventional uses for this type of technology? And does timing matter? Because I know you were saying earlier, you either test early or you test very, very late. And residual is usually, if you're testing for residual,
1: it's usually late. Yes. Yes. What, um, what companies like to do when they discover a well is they like to know early on what residual are we going to encounter. So what we do is we go to a brand new well producing 100% oil uh, and we inject water. Okay. For about a week. Uh, and we try to water out, it's, uh, uh, is a kind of a jargon term, Um, a local region around the well, about 20, 30 radial feet. And then we carry out the very test that I just described called a single well chemical tracer test. And we measure the residual oil saturation. And that will tell them uh, a lot about the recovery factor. How Mm -hmm. how much are we gonna leave in the ground as residual? uh, And they wanna know that early on. That's part of the economics of developing the field and exploiting the field. So uh, that's, uh, that's one early application. The other early application is we can do the same test injecting oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the oil will carry the ester out there. Uh, it will park it. There are There's always a water saturation. We call it conate water. Okay. Uh, even though the well produces 100% oil. And uh, shutting the, after injecting for a day of oil, carrying the, the ethyl acetate out there, will... Uh, shut the well in a few days and it will convert to to the alcohol because it's reacted with conate water. But this time the ester arrives first. The the partitioning tracer arrives first because the oil is the flowing component and the water is stationary. The alcohol is delayed Mm -hmm. because it has to spend time in the water and be recovered by the oil. It is slightly soluble in the oil. So we can measure quantitatively the conate water saturation, how much water is actually there. That helps to calibrate uh, Uh, Resistivity logs uh, uh, very early in the life of the field. And so we've done that quite a lot, especially in the offshore. Yeah. uh, Where they discover these fields and they really don't understand uh, what's there. Mm -hmm. Uh, The single well test, which takes a few days, uh, gives them a lot of uh, very useful information early on.
0: Um, One thing I did want to say, though, is that my background is primarily unconventionals, so we don't get a lot of testing, and a lot of people try and put a round peg in a square hole, so to speak, when it comes to testing residual and conate. but ultimately for modeling, we get to the uh, point where we just call it 10% on both of them and treat it as if it's the same number. But for conventionals, that's really not the case. And it's, it's critical to understand the difference between conate and residual. So this is one of the tests that helps you. Uh, do you happen to see any uses for this type of test in the unconventional world?
1: That's a challenge. Okay. And I'm hoping the next generation can meet that challenge. Uh, <laughs> we, um, we just don't have a well-defined um reservoir
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, in the unconventional when we're when we're going back into the source rocks uh, to get the oil that never left the source rocks to start with and and uh, going into very very tight uh, uh, rock that's not going to allow oil to flow until you break it and and artificially prop it up yeah the um that's a that's so far from our experience base that we're baffled we, we hmm. don't know uh, someone is going to have a, uh, one of those moments and say, "I uh-huh. think I know what to do." Yes, yeah. Uh, but for now, I think you're stuck with the ten and ten.
0: That's fine. Well, <laughs> it helps with my modeling. <laughs> <laughs> what are some common challenges that you have seen with this type of technology? Uh, is it human error? Is there are there challenges with conventional reservoirs? Because coming from unconventional to conventional. Uh, some people have joked with me that it'll be an easier transition and I don't necessarily agree. I think there are uh, keys and specifics with each type of reservoir that are challenging. So can you kind of take us through that a little bit?
1: Well, maybe, maybe a little history will help here. We first started testing in the East Texas field, which is a giant, uh, which one? Up around Kilgore, <laughs> Texas. Uh, it's a, we used to call an elephant, multi-billion barrel field. There aren't very many of those around. It was the largest field, uh, discovered in Texas at the time. Um, the, and that's where we started. Okay. And, uh, the results said uh, the residual saturation was 10%, uh, which was a shock to everyone. Like, how can it possibly be that low? Yeah. Um, then, and that was very easy. You just put water in the well, how much water you wanted to put it in there at however fast you wanted to go, it would go. The, um, hmm. it would go on vacuum as we called it. Uh, the well would just suck the water and the tracers right down. We produce it back and we get these beautiful profiles just like the simulator predicted. As, as uh, my career advanced forward another 30, 40 years, we are starting to look at, at reservoirs that are very tight, very difficult to inject into, uh, naturally fractured, uh, and we get away from this beautiful system of uh, interconnected pores uh, into a system that we don't understand very well. And so the tracers start behaving differently. They, they arrive earlier than we expect them. They have longer tails. Uh, okay. Some of it reflected from uh, fracturing. Oh. Uh, some of it uh, uh, as a result of diffusion into some of the parts of the, uh, the, the porosity that are not well connected for flow. And we start seeing uh, uh, tests that look very different. We can still interpret them uh, but they don't look anything like the East Texas field with its beautiful Darcy <laughs> sand. Uh, it was a good uh, one to start in, huh? <laughs> yes, it was a good If we started in some of these nasty things, we probably would have given up. Oh. But uh, also we've moved from plastics uh, through the years into more and more of these carbonates because some of the big reservoirs are carbonates. True, um, true, And yes. we're seeing uh, some different uh, effects from them. Um, and we're attributing that to uh, uh, natural fractures and uh, uh Poorly connected pores mm-hmm. that are just there by the very nature of how the the, the reservoir was deposited, and the uh, we're having to get creative about uh, interpreting these tests, uh, simulating this these diffusion effects, um, but we're having a hard time getting uh, standards. That is to say, uh, give me a rock that you know is uh, 10% naturally fractured and and has a uh, 20%. Uh, Uh, the porosity is poorly connected for flow, and we can calibrate our model. We don't have that. Mm -hmm. We have to keep guessing. Um, And even though we can match the tracer results, the the way the tracers come back, we can match that with a model. We can only describe the model. Uh, We can't really say that this is definitely what your reservoir looks like. Mm -hmm. And and that's where we live, and the industry is comfortable there because they're also limited. Uh, And what you asked me about was going to the next step to to some reservoirs that aren't even reservoirs and forcing the issue. Uh, So it just gets more and more challenging Mm -hmm. uh, to make these basic measurements. Uh, So it's uh, it's gonna take some uh, good minds and some good mentors.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, Speaking of the next generation and mentorship, what do you, seeing technology having evolved and kind of where the industry is headed, what do you hope uh, the next generation of engineers that, let's call them 10 years and under, will start doing with some of these newer technologies, but still not lose the you know, fundamentals and foundation of the older technologies?
1: Well, I, I think where we're headed, uh, uh, I don't think we're going to go far into the future uh, breaking source rocks and producing the oil that wouldn't escape the source rocks. I don't think that's where we're going. Mm -hmm. I think the we're gonna realize that uh, there's a lot of easy oil that is bypassed and has been abandoned and left behind because of economic limits. Uh, Like I said before, the two thirds of the oil is being left in the ground. Um, It was tested beautifully in the the Permian Basin using carbon dioxide to recover both bypassed and uh, residual oil, Uh, great exploitation out there. Mm-hmm. Then, just about the time we started feeling good about that, uh, chemical uh, uh, formulations started coming forward. Nice uh, surfactants that can scrub the the rock free of uh, of oil almost, and uh, polymers by thickening the water, you get more piston like displacement in a in a, a more enhanced water flood. In what we call uh, chemical enhanced oil recovery, either polymers or surfactant called polymers combined, and uh, that's oil that we've already found. Yes. It's, uh, uh, we know exactly where it is. We even know how much is there, mm-hmm. uh, but it's, it's expensive to go back. Uh, these wells are usually designed for 20, 25 year lifetime and they're done. And now we're saying, well, let's go back to these old fields and just start all over and just get more oil. Well, it's hard to start all over when the, when the wells are decrepit and yeah, corroded exactly. and, and are plugged and abandoned. You almost have to start over. So it's, it's a tough step to go to, uh, but I think it's our next step. Uh, the, uh, uh, some of the economics of the, of the unconventionals are starting to show that yes. it's, uh, it's not as exciting as it originally thought uh, in the way of making money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, uh, I, I, just as a side note, I find it personally fascinating that there's a little bit of a shift of wealth from the oil companies to the service companies, because the service companies always make money doing the fracks and they, they every time they're going to make a profit. Whereas the oil companies are not guaranteed.
0: That is the most expensive part. <laughs>
1: yes, and they are struggling. They are struggling with uh, really making this a commercial, uh, viable commercial venture. Um, and then you know the the story's not finished yet. But yeah. But we'll see. But I, I personally uh, favor uh, the idea of uh, going after the, the oil we're leaving in the ground. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the far and away the most promising technology is polymer.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. kind of cool stuff.
1: Yes, and it's inexpensive. It's true. Uh, it's not so expensive. Uh, the, the chemical flood, the the surfactants that we have to customize to be able to go scrub this oil that's pretty stubborn to put in a water solution, uh, they're they're fairly expensive, and it takes a high oil price to sponsor that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, polymers, we could go now. Uh, it's uh, we're we're ready. We know where the oil is, and polymers will get that bypassed oil. It won't reduce the residual, but it will get that third.
0: You know, it's interesting you talk about the economics between conventional and unconventional because. Yes, we're putting a lot of money into these bigger, better fracks, but we get decline curves that just drop off within the first three months. I mean, and people still use IP thirty as a KPI for the, you know, how well they're doing in the basin, which doesn't make any sense to me for long term. But if you take some of that big frac money and you put it back towards a conventional solution, you don't see they call it uh, less steep declines or slower declines, but really, what they're saying is, let's go back to more conventional methods for you know satisfying Wall Street, better turnarounds. So, do you really think it's the economics, or do you just think it's time value of money? People can't get past that shell craze right now.
1: Well, the it is a craze, uh, <laughs> and the
0: uh, I know it is because I used uh, to work in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, people love that.
1: Well, it it's done some very positive things. Uh, it's made the us uh biggest oil producer uh which we haven't seen in my lifetime. Mark. yeah. uh it's done that. it's uh it's really uh made us smart for uh going and uh, doing uh, multi-stage fracking uh and being intelligent about it. it's it's an incredible advance in uh, uh understanding rock mechanics and that. but it has not been Uh, in my opinion, uh, anything like the the economic success that the oil companies have enjoyed with conventional. Uh, You just couldn't go wrong when you discovered an oil field uh, that had 500 million barrels in it. Mm -hmm. uh, Drill it up, find its limits, and start producing, and you can sell every barrel you can make. That's the wonderful thing about the oil company, oil business. You know, uh, if you start making snow cones, There's a limit to how many you can sell. You know, you'll saturate the market very quickly. The oil business has never been that way. You can sell every barrel you make. True. And that's, uh, in the conventional world, uh, that's a great profit center. However, uh, when it's costing you uh, 20 to 50 times more to get a well completed to these unconventionals, you've got to make 20 to 50 times more profit. And it's just not. And faster. And it's just not there. Yeah. So far. Um, maybe, but, um, the price tag's high mm-hmm. for getting those wells on. And, uh, the disappointment is they're they come on like bang busters, like you say, and then in uh, three to six months, they're looking around going, where did our 800 barrels a day go?
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Wall Street's asking that question too. <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. And it's starting to get embarrassing. Oh, um, but the oil companies have always enjoyed the gusher. They've always enjoyed uh, big IPs. That's the initial production rate of a well. Eight hundred barrels is about the average, uh, but I've seen five thousand barrel of wells comes out of the Eagle Ford. Uh, five thousand barrels a day. Mm-hmm. Um, they say we're good, but the the mindset is that's going to be around for thirty years because that's the conventional thinking. Exactly. But and the unconventional it's around for. 30 Ten. days. <laughs>
0: 10 years at best sometimes. Yeah, so, so.
1: so it's a very different... Uh, so I'd love for us to get back and start spending money uh, recovering what we already own. Yeah. Uh, and polymers is the answer uh, The uh, for now. At 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 50 to 60 bucks a barrel, polymers is has got all the punch we need. Uh, and I have so many dear friends that are in the surfactant business, and my apologies. We'll... Uh, we'll... Uh, <laughs> Uh, we'll get there, too. They, the, the surfactants can do what the polymers can't. They can go get the residual, which yes. is the other third,
0: and change but it's just a
1: matter of, uh, can we afford to get that third? Yeah. Uh, so far, we've been going at it with the both barrels, if you will, doing a surfactant polymer combination, uh, trying to get the bypassed and the residual, the other two thirds, um, and we're finding it expensive.
0: Yeah, that's true. So from your experience, knowing what we know about the difference in the reservoirs, do you think we are at a pivot point where how we measure success or being on a successful team, uh, drilling, production, even reservoir, do you think our KPIs are going to adjust? And if so, what what do you kind of foresee adjusting? Is It's not going to still be the IP 30, 60, 90. And I know that that was something in conventionals as well, but... How are we as an industry going to pivot with what's happening with our volatility right now?
1: I wish I knew. Mm -hmm. I think that would be, um, um, it it would take uh, someone smarter than me to answer that question. (laughs) But uh, I I know what I would like for them to do. And I think I would like uh, uh, the enthusiasm for unconventionals to be shared with some of the conventional. Right now, Mm -hmm. it just seems like, all the money's being spent on uh long laterals, multi stage fracks, zipper fracks, all this going after the big uh IPs. Yeah. Uh, and uh but we tend to do that, you know. I was told back when I started into the production side, the, the downstream business, I said, you know, we're we're like farmers. Uh, when one farmer plants corn, everybody plants corn. Yeah. In the in the whole county. And the oil business, even though they won't admit it, uh have been very similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, long laterals and fracking is uh, the way we're getting big IPs. So let's do it.
0: And, yeah.
1: And it just seems everybody's charging that direction. Uh, but the two thirds of our oil is still stuck in the ground. Yep. In forty thousand oil fields in the lower forty-eight. Yep. And it's still there. So when people ask me, "Are we going to run out of oil?" Well, <laughs>
0: I don't think so. <laughs> no. We no. Just, we're just going to have
1: to get a little more clever.
0: I like that. Well, on that note, let's go back to mentorship. So my generation compared to your generation, I would say there's some distinct differences. And I was fortunately, I was born without the gift of shame. So I have the ability to go and just ask questions. I don't really care if I look stupid if it produces a better result. Not everyone has that. In fact, what I've noticed uh, amongst my peers is that people are becoming more and more afraid to ask the question for the better result. So from your experience and how you mentor your guys here, what do you hone in on? What, what would you encourage those with 10 years and less experience, heck, even 15 and less years of experience to start doing differently, to take advantage of the gurus that we still have in industry?
1: Well, the... Um... I, I would say if, um, if there's someone uh, in your um, uh, reach uh, that you admire is just simply uh, share that with them, that you admire them and you would love to learn more from them and just ask a few questions. I, I, um, um, it's kind of like uh, my wife asking her about the grandkids. You dare not do that unless you have a couple hours <laughs> we, uh, generally, the, 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 the generation with the experience is anxious to share, um, and, but they, they're shy, too. They're shy, too? Yes, <laughs> we, we are shy. <laughs> but I, I would just say just uh, get in the habit of asking, and don't be afraid of a dumb question. What, one, uh, one starting point we have here in our company is we just say there's no such thing as a stupid question. Uh, let's get that down now as a ground rule. And so, even though sometimes I will laugh, um, <laughs> it, it's still, we haven't declared that to be a stupid question, uh, but it's the way we learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the uh, uh, the secret is out that uh, when you get a, a degree uh, or an, even an advanced degree in a technical field, it just means that you're a blank sheet of paper. Correct. Uh, you know how to solve equations and you've got a tremendous vocabulary. But there is no experience uh, there, correct? Um, and uh, the experience, and and that is going to have to come from mentors, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and the practical solutions. Uh, the uh,
0: that's how common sense gets spread forward, basically.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely, and the uh, uh, I, I think a little bit of our our shyness. I I I, I would speak for the younger generation. Has come from the internet and Google. Uh, we the the kids uh, that work with me they, they would rather Google than call. Yeah. And um, I think that's just uh, dis- doing a disservice to yourself. Uh, pick up the phone, and and call and talk to real people. Uh, there there's I don't think there's a fear of uh, talking with people on the telephone, but there is a reluctance uh, for some reason. Uh, Maybe I can read it uh, when I, after I, after I look it up on the internet or, Mm -hmm. or or YouTube. uh, um.
0: I use YouTube sometimes. Oh yes. Yeah.
1: Oh yes. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. But I tell you, I've been uh, working with a program called SolidWorks because I have a 3D printer and I'm playing and external threads were just killing me. And I went on YouTube and I've looked at at least 10, 12 different sessions and, I was into this five and six hours just to try to make external threads on a bolt. And it was just getting disgusting. <laughs> and I, I I ran across a physics student uh, two days ago, uh, Stephen. And I said, do you know how to make external threads on, on SolidWorks? Most people will just look at me like I'm crazy. And he says, yes, I do. Uh, so I really lucked out on that. And he went to my house and sat there by my computer and in 10 minutes showed me how to do it and I was so excited he couldn't believe an old man like me could get excited about something like that. <laughs> but it was the difference in the, trying to find it on the internet yeah. and just simple mentoring.
0: It took five minutes for him five to teach me. Five minutes you. and he showed me. Well, what do you think managers, because we, you know that five-year mark, especially for engineers, and I'm seeing it with the geoscientists, I'm seeing it with field guys now, you hit five years in our industry and somehow that qualifies you for a seniority role. But one thing I've learned about or through doing these podcasts is that the more the closer I get to five years, the less I actually know what's going on. (laughs) And I would hope that the ones rising into those more managerial type positions and more leadership roles as they gain their tenure in this industry would almost realize that as well. So from your experience, what do young managers need to be aware of? Do you have any sort of life lessons that you could uh, encourage them to <laughs> heed <laughs> from your experiences that would make them better managers, better leaders for the next generation?
1: Uh, well, yeah, I, I, uh, I have an opinion there. And uh, the, uh, I am a field man. Yeah. Uh, my career was uh, out there uh, in the field. And I, I, uh, I went to the field with a very uh, famous researcher uh, a few years ago, I won't mention his name because he'll be embarrassed. <laughs> and uh, we, he went to the location with me, and he says, "I just want to see how you do this." And yeah, I said, sure. And uh, he told me he had been in, he had been working with a major oil company for uh, over thirty years, and he said this is the first time he's ever been to an oil well in his career.
0: Over and, thirty years, yes. Wow. And
1: I, and, I, and so the natural um, answer is. Uh, get away from the computer. Uh, the computer is kind of a trap. Uh, the real experience, real hands-on. And um, I would love to see our engineers go and spend a day with the pumper. Yeah. And just find out what is really What does it happening. mean? <laughs> yes. How does this all really get to the tank and then what happens? Exactly. And um, I find that our, our young uh, uh, engineers are not, exposed to that so much um, and uh, I, I would really encourage managers to get a time where they too can go to the field because sometimes the managers haven't been to the field much correct and um, but, the, but I, I think one answer your question is is broad but uh, one help is to get to the field because you understand the kind of problems that need to be solved when you're in the field Uh, and there may be simple problems, and maybe your naivety, the first time you've ever seen a a wing valve, you might come up with a solution that's fantastic, whereas folks that are working with it every day may not see it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I would encourage uh, especially engineers uh, to go to where the action is. and In the oil business, that's at the oil well site, Mm -hmm. the drilling rig, the workover rig, and you will get dirty. uh, That's a good thing. And you will hear some... uh, Pretty scary stories, but uh, <laughs> Do you
0: have some pretty scary stories? I have a lot of scary
1: stories. <laughs> but they're, they're, uh, they're probably not going to fit today's conversation. But the uh, but the, the simple idea is to learn your trade. And, and I think our trade is... Uh, I don't think it's in front of a glass screen.
0: I agree. It's a hands-on industry. Heck mm-hmm. yeah. Well, from your experience, the service side of everything, being out in the field. We are in quite a volatile environment and we are seeing a few companies tout all these profits, but then we'll hear, and I I understand that it's a few, we are seeing a lot of struggles happening, but then we'll hear that service companies are operating on margin, like razor blade margin, thin type, uh, budgets just to make profit. What, what do you see happening to the service side of our industry in the next five years? Especially with these, all these pivot points that tend to pop up.
1: Well, the um, um, people in the food industry, for example, we've we've tested some polymers for a big uh, food company, and uh, we went to the took them to an oil field, showed them what an oil well looked like, and we injected some of their polymer uh, down a, a well just for uh, to see if it would actually go in the reservoir. Um, but it was uh, engineers working for the food industry. Mm-hmm. And they were just stunned at the prices for uh, what they had to pay for a simple vacuum truck to show up and bring some water. Uh, because in the food industry, the margins are even tinier. Huh. Uh, they uh, just, just panties. And uh, they're, and they, they, uh, they know, they know what it costs to own a truck, to drive a truck, to insure a truck, to put a driver in the truck and that. So the food industry is very tight. And so they, they control the, the service side is saying, this is all we're gonna pay for this service. However, the oil company have always been very, very liberal. Mm-hmm. And it has been a wonderful experience in my career uh, to work with uh, companies that understand that if you only call you out once every six months, your prices are gonna be high. Yeah. Uh, but they said, uh, well, we may not call you every six months, but when we need you, we need you, and we'll pay what it takes. But the, um, um, I, I'm not seeing uh, service companies operating on such tiny margins uh, of late, Um, and they have um, uh, in the past, but I think the the service companies are fairly healthy there now. What what we've done in in a service industry is in order to control our costs, we've just fluctuated our personnel. In other words, when things get bad, we lay off a lot of people. Yeah. When things get good, we hire, hire them back what's we left. We panic double. hire them. Yes, back. yes, absolutely. Um, but the oil business has always been very liberal uh, in the prices they're willing to pay for simple services in the field. And they understand that their calling on service companies may not be very frequent. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the prices are going to be higher. But um, uh, it, 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 it probably doesn't fit the question very well. Uh, But uh, uh, in my experience, uh, especially with the long laterals and the multi-frack, multi-phase fracking going on, there's a lot of money uh, shifting to the service industry right now.
0: Okay. So for those that are going through the layoffs and going through the volatility, what advice do you have for them to stay close to industry, but they might have to stretch outside their role in some capacity? How do, they, how do they find their way from field to firm? How do they stay relevant to their team so that maybe they can avoid the layoff? And honestly, if they do get laid off, how do they get back in?
1: It's really tough. Uh, my brother is an example. He's had, a, he's had a tough time. He's a petroleum engineer. He's worked for a lot of big companies and, uh, in that, and he's been caught in a lot of layoffs. Um, the, uh, when I started into the industry, uh, when you went to work for Exxon, it was a career
0: yeah exactly uh,
1: being laid off it was a, not even a concept uh, and then in the mid 80s for the first time in history shell laid off 5000 oh. and it was like what shocking yeah and the loyalty uh that the engineers had to these companies uh was, was discovered to be misplaced uh, yeah now we're changing jobs eight ten times in our career uh, but to answer your question more directly Um, the competition is tough there's some very bright engineers uh, and so what I would recommend is uh, don't go stale Uh, keep learning Mm -hmm. um, and read the literature the uh, (laughs) there's uh, for the specialty that you're going after there's some great SBE papers out there and just learn what other people have to say um, about your aspect of the industry, whatever that narrow field is. And we always all have to kind of narrow in on something uh, where none of us are the, the renaissance engineer. Yeah. <laughs> so we're having to really zero in on the specialty, but really learn that specialty. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and and you will come up with good ideas and you you will be the keeper, yeah, uh, rather than the one that's uh, still looking. But it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge from the time that we went into freshman class We realized we took Calc 1, this is going to be a challenge. Well, that stays stays with us for our career.
0: Yeah, I still have a little bit of trauma from Calc 1 through 3, (laughs) so I definitely agree with that. So a day in your life, you obviously you started with awesome mentors. You learned the business. You got your hands dirty. Have you done anything, I'm talking your daily routine, how you stay organized, 12 a.m. to 11.59 p.m., is there anything unique about your schedule and how you've sort of evolved that has given you your edge? Because honestly, we're all looking for that next thing to help us be more effective, more productive, and to stand out.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the um, I, I, I tell the guys uh, often that I've reached a point in my career where I can do what I please, but uh, <laughs> uh, maybe owning the company has something to do with that. But <laughs> but the, uh, what I try to do is leave a substantial amount of time to just think about what improvements we can make. How can we be better? Mm-hmm. What can we do better? What, uh, what equipment is getting old? What, uh, what training do we need to give our guys? What do they need uh, in the way of understanding? Which way are we going? Uh, I could very easily be consumed with email uh, and uh, communication and phone calls. It could consume my day. So personally, I try to delegate uh, as much as I can uh, to where I'm not uh, tied up in uh, some of the things that would just consume my day. Because I really enjoy uh, thinking about uh, what, what's coming next, what's on the horizon, which yeah. way are we going? Uh, And if you're not careful, you can be consumed. Mm -hmm. Uh, 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 I've noticed uh, as I delegate uh, uh, folks to take care of the bills coming in and this various uh, uh, things that go day to day, uh, uh, technology seems to fill that gap. Like I get more text now than ever in my life. I I must get 20 a day. So they've (laughs) discovered a way to penetrate this this uh, guarding, I've been trying to guard time just to yeah. think. And I'll, I'll sit down and I'll say, well, let's, let's think about where we're going. And my text will start going off. But uh, maybe leave the cell phone somewhere for a couple hours a day and just go without it. It's Disconnect. A, it's almost unimaginable today uh, to not be near your cell phone. Yeah. But we just need time, uh, uh, a fraction of our day or as much as you can, just to ask, where are we going? Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be consumed with busy work.
0: Yeah, you'll never get out of it. It'll just be a cycle. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you do anything unique to decompress?
1: Oh, I fish a lot, and I build uh, radio-controlled airplanes and fly them, and I uh, try to learn new things. Like now, I'm learning solid works so I can have more fun with my 3D printer and uh, <laughs> I love but, that. But, Every uh,
0: nerd in America who hears this is gonna be like, yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. Uh they uh so I try to keep the juices going, uh by just always something new. If I if I hear about something new, I, I want to learn a little more about it. Yeah. Uh it may be something. Constantly we can use. curious, huh? Yes. Yes.
0: yes. <laughs> Do you have a book, podcast, or other resource that you would recommend to anyone in this industry, geos to field that has brought you value that you think could bring them value?
1: Um, Not any one particular book in that, uh, but um, I personally like to try to keep up with what's being journaled. That's what is what is going into our literature because there's some really uh, good investigators out there that are improving uh, thinking about uh, different problems in the field. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is read the Journal of Petroleum Engineering. JPT. Uh, read the journal. It's uh, There's some really, really good thoughts in there. Uh, and that stimulates our thoughts that, you know, that gives me an idea. Yeah. Whereas uh, if we don't read these things, and they are, they're a hard read, they're, they're not the book Forrest Gump, which is fun, but they're, uh, uh, sometimes they can be a tough read, but they, they all have value. So I would say the the, uh, the journal, uh, uh, I, um, I have written uh, near the, the, uh, the, the articles as my friend, uh, Gary Pope, one of my closest friends, uh, uh, but I have, I've written a few, but I read his stuff. Yeah. Because uh, I know he's working on the same thing that I'm trying to go to the field with. Uh, so just identify authors that uh, you want to follow and and read what they're publishing.
0: So before we sign off, what's your favorite oil field story?
1: Oh, uh, oh my.
0: You got the, one that you tell regularly?
1: They, uh, uh, well, oil field story. They... We are in the business of measuring how much oil is left in these poor oil fields. Uh, and one day I was walking out to the well and I took a sample. We just take a little half cup water off the well. And we injected water, to, as I mentioned earlier, with tracers. And now we're recovering them. And so uh, I'm walking back to, from the well to our little laboratory. And the pumper drives up and he says, uh, Charlie, how's it going? He said, it's going great you make any oil yet? No. Like Bummer. And he drove off. (laughs) Bummer. (laughs) Bummer. Sorry. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow.
0: I love that. That's hilarious. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. You brought such value. I know everyone's going to love this. And I really appreciate all the education you provided because I did not know. So Thank you again, and I hope you have a great rest of your time down in Texas. Thanks so much. Good Lord. I love Charlie's story. He is the living example of the value of a good mentor. He has an amazing vantage point. He pays it forward every day. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to get your hands dirty. And also, humility is the best approach to any problem. I love what charlie has done for our industry and i cannot thank him enough for sharing his insights anyway if you have any thoughts or questions shoot them to me via facebook instagram linkedin or the website at audacity.com. hold on one more thing before you go if today's episode brought you any sort of value go online rate review subscribe also if you have any topics or influencers you would like us to feature you can get in touch with us via Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or the website at www.thecrudaudacity.com. Thanks so much for your engagement, and until next week, give them hell.